We're going we're gonna to bounce back and forth a couple of times from the apostolic scriptures to the uh, Parsha. So, but let's, let's start in Acts uh, for beginners here. I, I, love, I love the story in chapter 14, uh, especially beginning in 11, when the, uh, the folks in the town of Lystra see the miracle of this man being healed and jumping around on his feet. They're all freaking out and saying, the gods have come down to us. And uh, Paul, he must be uh, Zeus. Oh, sorry, Barnabas is Zeus and Paul must be Hermes. And uh, because he was the chief speaker, it says. And they were just about to offer sacrifices to these guys. And uh, with, with great effort, of course, they were restrained. But I, I just love how uh, one moment they're almost worshipping these guys and the next moment they're trying to kill them, stone them to death. It just goes to show you that the, the crowd can be rather unpredictable. It's a great picture of the mob in action, eh? One minute they're almost worshipping them, the next moment they're trying to kill them. So, uh, what's the lesson? Maybe stay out of the mob. How does that sound? Um, I want to talk about, about Shaul, about Paul for a couple of minutes, because pretty soon we're going to be wrapping up this cycle of the readings, and we're going to be starting through the remainder of the apostolic scriptures, which is going to encompass all of his, his epistles. And uh, there's, this, there's this pop notion out there. I think it's best summarized by his, his dual names. Uh, there's a general understanding that, that, uh, that uh, Paul grew up in a very traditional Jewish context in the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, memorizing the whole Torah word for word, uh, learning the, uh, the, the Mishnah and the Gemara that accompanied it, the commentary and the commentary on the commentary, uh, that, that Hebrew was his, his heart language, his, his first, his, his mother tongue. Um, and and then, uh, then he goes on this trip in his zeal for, uh, for God. He goes on this trip to uh, apprehend the heretics in Damascus. And, and he has this power encounter with uh, the supernatural figure. And uh, he's left blinded. And uh, there's this, the pop, the pop notion from here is that there's this conversion that happens. Uh, Saul flip-flops um, religions. And overnight he converts from the religion of Judaism to the religion of Christianity. So whereas he started out, uh, as, we just, as I just described, he is miraculously transformed into a veritable Gentile. He is suddenly changed overnight into a Greek-speaking, Hellenistic, anti-Torah dude. That, that's the general idea. And uh, how do we prove this? Well, we prove it because he was always called Saul. But then after his conversion to Christianity, he was only called Paul. That, that's generally what's, uh, that's what's, that's what's claimed. Um, just last week, I poked my nose into Scott's Parable, the Christian bookstore in Saskatoon. I like to check out a couple of magazines. They're like uh, Biblical Ar- Archaeological Review. I went and checked out... Uh, their men's section, where they have sections on leadership and business. And I noticed there was a new book there by an author that I have really enjoyed. His name is David Murrow. Uh, he wrote a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. I've, I've quoted that book on numerous occasions. Anyway, he has a new one out called The Map. It looks fascinating. I, I, I think I'll probably read it. But as I was flipping through it, I noticed this one little section where he said, he's, talk, he's telling the story, the, the epic saga of, of Saul. And uh, he, he, he gets to the point where he's converted, and then he says, and from that day on, he was never called Saul again. He received a new name, Paul. And that was the only thing he was called. And I, I was shocked. I was like, didn't this author, hasn't this author read the New Testament? Hasn't he read the book of Acts? Why, why don't we look at that for a moment? And, and let's, just, let's, just, let's just run this idea through our cri- critical apparatus. And we're going to see if it's true that miraculously over, overnight he was transformed and that... Uh, in terms of religion, and that he got a, a new name, Paul. Uh, okay, let's look at Acts chapter 9, is where he encounters Mashiach. Directly after that, in 9.22, after he becomes a believer, it says, but Saul, Shaul, kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Yeshua is the Mashiach. Hmm. He's called Shaul. Saul there. That's interesting. That was after his conversion. Uh, moving on. 1125. 
and 11.30, he's called Saul there. In 12.25, he's also called Saul. In 13.2, he's not only called Saul by his colleagues or by the people surrounding him, he's called Saul by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of Holiness himself, affirming that this truly it continues to be his identity. Uh, then, finally, in Acts 13.7, we read this. I'm sorry, 13 verse 9. Acts 13.9, But Saul, who was also Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, etc. So, we see that Messiah's emissary to the nations had two names. He was Saul, Shaul, and he was also Paul. It wasn't a matter of him being one thing at the beginning and another thing later. And uh, maybe it sounds like I'm belaboring a point here. I mean, it's just a name, right? But you know what? Our our names often signify so much more. Uh, They communicate our identity. Uh, Especially in the Jewish paradigm, your name has a meaning, and your name communicates something about who you are. In fact, uh, there's a traditional Jewish belief that Every parent, even if he's a hardened criminal, when he's naming his children, he names his child under the, uh, the prophetic inspiration, under the Ruach HaKodesh. And uh, there may actually be some support from, for that idea where Paul writes about how the Father in heaven is the one from whom the whole family gets its name in heaven and on earth. It, it could be that everyone on earth truly has been named by him. Anyway, so um, that, that's why this is meaningful because it's just one more example of how drastically this controversial apostle has been misunderstood, how his letters have often been twisted to uh, serve the purposes of people who have chips on their shoulders, who have agendas, who uh, don't really want to read and believe the complete Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So, I just gave you one, two, three, four, five, six places, I think, where, uh, where he's called Shaul after his conversion. So go out and spread the good news. Go tell the whole world that he continued to be Saul even after he met Mashiach, that a Jewish person can come to faith in Yeshua and continue to be Jewish, continue to practice the Torah, continue to have a Hebrew name. Um, this is actually, this was very common in, in Second Temple Judea. It's also common today in the Jewish world. You'll often have uh, like your Hebrew name, that your parents will give you, your so-and-so, Ben so-and-so, or if you're a lady, then your so-and-so, Bot so-and-so, the daughter of, of so-and-so. And then you also have your name in the lingua franca of uh, the society that you live in. In, in that case, it was often a Greek name. Um, in our case today, it's more often an English name. Uh, there are actually several examples of this in the apostolic scriptures. I'll highlight three for you. Uh, in Acts 1, 23... There is a believer named Joseph who is also called Justice. So here we see a man whose Hebrew name was Yosef and whose Greek name was Eustus. You can hear the similarity. Uh, often they would endeavor to take a name in the whatever Gentile uh, tongue happened to be spoken in their area that sounded like their Hebrew name. Uh, it makes sense. In fact, uh, my, my grandfather on my mother's side came from a Ukrainian Jewish family. His mom's maiden name was Sruel, which is Yiddish for Israel. And uh, even though he was born here in Canada, he grew up in a Ukrainian-speaking home. Uh, his, his Ukrainian name was Vasil. And uh, his, Engl- his, his English name is William, or Bill. So Bill Kardash has a name in English, the country that he lives in, and because he has these roots in the Ukraine and in the Ukrainian culture, he also has the name uh, Vasil. Um, when he was a little, littler boy, he was Vasily. And uh, I, I find that rather charming. So that's an example even today about how that often happens um, in the interplay of cultures. Um, also in Colossians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul mentions a man called Jesus. Jesus, also called Justice. And he specifies that he's from the circumcision. So here we have a brother out in the diaspora, a colleague of Shaul's, and uh, his Hebrew name is Yeshua was a good Hebrew name back then, continues to be a good Hebrew name today. Um, His Hebrew name was Yeshua, and his Greek name, again, was Eustus, the exact same name as uh, the other other brother in Acts 1. 
Um, and he specifies that he's from the circumcision, which means he's Jewish, not surprisingly. Uh, finally, a character that shows up in this week's readings is Marcos. Marcos is his Greek name. What's his Hebrew name? Yochanan. He's often called John Mark. Yochanan Marcos. So these are three examples of this that help us understand Shaul in the, uh, the fabric of the society and the Jewish world that he lived in. I'll, I'll point out to you a couple fascinating Hebrew highlights from this reading. I love how there's just this Jewish heart that is pulsing through the book of Acts. There is this underlying Hebrew fabric and you can see the warp and the woof of it um, when, you, when you know Hebrew and you're reading through this. Uh, give you a couple little examples. Um, in Acts 13.32, Yeshua's two emissaries in the synagogue say, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. They're saying here, we're proclaiming to you the gospel of the promise made to the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, David. These are some of the fathers of the faith, uh, the authors of the Torah and uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And what they're saying is, we are preaching to you the gospel according to the Torah. There was a promise made to the fathers of Israel, and this promise is being fulfilled in Yeshua. So, you know, that, that, is a, that is a worthy endeavor for each of us to grow in, to practice on each other. Can you preach the gospel according to the Torah? Can you go only from the Torah and proclaim the promise made to the fathers, fulfilled in Yeshua? They had no New Testament to go by at that point. They only had the Tanakh. And uh, we would do well to uh, follow their example and learn to exegete the Old Testament, as it's popularly called, and, and show how it points to Mashiach, who doesn't abolish it by his coming, but who fills it full of meaning, who, uh, who fulfills those ancient promises and uh, continues to fill, them, fill the Torah full of meaning through our lives as we practice it also. Um, the very next verse, that's Acts 13.32. The very next verse is Acts 13.33. And uh, here we read, that Elohim has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Yeshua. And this is something that jumped out at me years ago when I first began studying the Torah in Hebrew. Uh, when we talk about fulfilling a promise, we have several idioms in English to communicate that idea. We, we make good on a promise. We uh, come through on a promise. Um, what, would be, what would be some other ones? You fulfill a promise... You keep your promise. These are some examples. In Hebrew, the, uh, the idiomatic expression for filling a promise is you raise your promise. That is the way to express that idea. You raise your promise. It's the very same word as is used to, uh, to uh, describe Yeshua as being raised from the dead, the resurrection from the dead. So when you keep a promise, in Hebrew you're saying you resurrect the promise. So... With that understanding, listen, listen to these emissaries and ask yourself, could it be that they're thinking in Hebrew and it's coming through even in our translation of a translation? We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has raised this promise to our sons in that he raised up Yeshua. So you know, as, as, we, uh, as we read the Torah, wherever it talks about him keeping a promise, read that raised and then remember that in Yeshua in the resurrection from the dead, the Father has ratified every one of his promises. He has ratified his Torah in its entirety. He has renewed his previous covenants. That is the, that is the punch of the new covenant. It's not just a standalone covenant. All the other covenants are backing it, and it backs all the other covenants. Wow. <laughs> I'll, give you a, I'll give you two other... Uh, Another insight here, there are, there are two, two uh, descriptors of uh, David HaMelech, David the king. Uh, notably, Yeshua is called the son of only three personages that I can think of in the Brit Chadashah. Um, number one, he's called Ben Avraham, the son of Abraham. Uh, number two, he's called Ben David, the son of David. And of course, number three, he's Ben Elohim, the son of the Almighty. So uh, these are three people that Yeshua is very closely identified with. Uh, specifically, the personages of Moshe and David will, will give us uh, very deep glimpses into Mashiach and uh, his essence. And uh, 
it, it says a couple of things in here about David that I thought could be excellent points of prayer for us. Let's say you have children or grandchildren or friends or whoever that you're praying for. I'll give you two things that would be very powerful things to pray for them. It's from the life of David. Um, firstly, it says about, about David that he was a man after Elohim's heart. He was, there was some deep connection between David and the heart of God. And uh, that is where it starts, doesn't it? Those were the years where David was a shepherd, where he was running around in the countryside, where he was in training. And he was, he was, his heart was, was coming to pulse in, in rhythm with the heart of his creator. And that is something that we can be praying for people in our lives. Uh, it didn't end there, though. It goes on to see that, say that David served. It uh, goes on to say that he served in uh, Acts 13.36. He served God's purpose in his generation. And that is, a, that is a worthy ideal for each of us. That is something that you can set as a, as a life goal. That is something that you can pray for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren. Uh, decades after you are gone, um, this is a prayer that can continue to apply to your family members, um, that they will be people after his heart and that they will serve his purpose in their generation. So those are two things that we can that we can be praying in a practical in a practical sense. Oh, um, one other practical application from this uh, understanding of of Saul and his two names is a uh, Jewish people have a Hebrew name, even if they have like a Gentile name. That person will also have a Hebrew name. It's often a name that's close to their heart. It's who they most deeply are. Uh, my investor in Saskatoon, for instance, is a Jewish man, and uh, he, he he shared with me his Hebrew name. And all of a sudden, we were really close. That would be an example of that. So I encourage you, you know, if you meet a Jewish person or if you have a Jewish friend, um, not necessarily a believer either, ask them what their Hebrew name is. It'll just take your friendship to a new level. And they'll realize that you really understand the Jewish people, that you're in touch with that heartbeat. So uh, that alone can be an excellent witness for Mashiach. Um, Acts 13.22. This is a verse that you can write on your... Uh, 14.22, sorry. This is a verse that you can write on a sticky note and, with a big happy face next to it and put on your fridge. Um, the, to sum up the message of Yeshua's emissaries to these new communities of disciples, this is how they encourage them, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's the encouragement. <laughs> That's the message for new believers, for new communities of believers. It's through tribulations, many of them, that we are going to enter God's kingdom. And that is true today. Now, how that applies to the pre-tribulation rapture, hmm, I'm not entirely sure, but I think there could be a correlation there. But, but the point is, you know, um, there's this element where it's going to happen. It's good to be emotionally prepared for this. It's good to be psychologically geared up for it. Um, it's good to have that little sticky note on your fridge that says that you're expecting it, and hey, you're encouraged by it. So put the, put the happy face next to that, that, um, that phrase when you put it on your fridge, hey? <laughs> um, I'm going to cover Acts 15 at the end of my talk today. Um, I and the two other men who are on the leadership team of our congregation in Saskatoon, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace, uh, we wrote up a position paper on Acts 15 and on the uh, theology that in the last year, First Fruits of Zion has introduced. Uh, it's often termed as uh, divine invitation theology. So we'll be talking about that at the end. But I want to I sandwich our, our discussion here by looking at the Torah parasha first. So if you all want to turn with me to the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy. We'll, uh, we'll do some studying there and then we'll get back to this. Uh, last year, this was the Parsha that we read at Camp Zimratya, Canada's Messianic Youth Camp in our first year. And a close friend of mine and a Hebrew teaching colleague, Ben Frostad, pointed out that th this was his birth parsha. So he knows a lot of things about this parsha. And he pointed out that this parsha has more mitzvot, more commandments than any other one in the whole Torah. Uh, this parsha also features what's traditionally understood in Judaism as the least of the commandments. 
you remember Yeshua referenced the, quote, least of the commandments in Matthew 5. So we are going to discover what that one is. And uh, if, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then this is a partial. You'll really want to spend time and you'll, you'll want to be scrutinizing this and going over it with a fine-toothed comb. Um, this parsha also contains more laws that are mocked by people who hate God and despise his law than any other parsha in the Torah. Um, people who are going to be the littlest guys in the kingdom, uh, like, you know, those who are going to get nosebleed seats in the kingdom stadium, if they're even lucky to get in at all, this is a parsha that they just go wild over. Because there are some things in this parsha that at first glance seem slightly bizarre, they could be subject to ridicule, maybe they don't seem just, maybe they really don't fit our Western cultural understanding, but uh, you know what? It's the word of God. And uh, in the words of Paul in Romans 7, the commandment, the mitzvah is three things, it's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. That was, that was Paul's nomology. That was his understanding of the Torah. That was how he read this parasha. So you know, if we want to be true to Paul, we'll probably have to approach this parasha with the same respectful attitude. Um, well, let's look at a couple of the commands in this parsha that are often mocked. Often when uh, you raise the idea that, that the Pentateuch actually has relevancy to the, uh, the, the uh, Christian community, the New Covenant believer today, um, they'll, they'll, they'll raise, it's, very, it's quite predictable, they'll raise certain, uh, certain laws in the, quote, Old Testament that seem to be uh, unjust or a little weird or not relevant culturally or whatever. Uh, if, you've, if you've read the, uh, the write-up, Why Can't I Own a Canadian?, then you'll see a classic example of that. I'm not going to read it because it's actually blasphemous. It calls things that God says good, evil, and vice versa. It calls things that God says are righteous and just as the opposite. Um, it basically like goes over a whole long list of commandments in the Torah and mocks them. I don't know. Have any of you read Why Can't I Own a Canadian? It's easy to find. Just get on Google and type in Why. And you know how it brings up a, a list of the things that are most often searched based on that word. The very first one that comes up is, why can't I own a Canadian? So uh, you should go and, and check that out. The, uh, the disturbing thing to me, though, is uh, people who hate God and his law, spiritual anarchists, people who are avid atheists and who support the murder of innocent children and, and so many atrocities. These are the people who will mock the Torah. These are the people who, who, who just get a real kick out of the why can't I own a Canadian um, ideology. But very often, we as Christians find ourselves sounding much the same. We mock certain laws in the Old Testament. We, uh, we, uh, we, we, we cast them in a negative light. We, we suggest that they're not righteous, that they're not just. And uh, if you ask me, that's a scary place to be. I, I would rather be too far in the extreme on the God of Israel's side and on the side of his righteous law than too far on the other side. Anyway, uh, one of them is uh, the, the, the rebellious son. If you have a rebellious son and he's, he's, uh, he's um, constantly getting sloshed and partying and he won't listen to you, then you take him to the elders of your town and uh, you report the case and they take your son and they stone him. End of story is essentially what it says. And people say, well, that's terrible. How could, how could you ever do that to your, your child? Isn't that unjust? Uh, we, forgetting that this is the very word of God we're talking about here. Uh, an interesting note from Jewish history is that this is a commandment that was never actually carried out. Um, it was a very effective deterrent against rebellious attitudes in children, but it never went to the point where children died over this. Um, maybe it does communicate something to us, though, of just how important respect from children to parents is. Maybe communicate something about that. There are so many examples. Um, an, another one, maybe we'd look at this and we'd say, wow, you know, out of all the things that could have gotten airtime in the Bible, why did God take some time to talk about this one? Let's look at that, let's look at that commandment in Deuteronomy 22, 6 and 7. Um, who was it that read this one? Was it, uh, it was either Genevieve or Charlotte? Yeah, it was you, Genevieve, yeah. It, this, is, this is what is traditionally regarded in Judaism as the least of the commandments. It's uh, what you do if you encounter a bird's nest. Maybe it's in the tree or on the ground. It says, uh, don't take the mother and the eggs. Let the mother go 
and uh, you can eat the eggs. <laughs> and why? So that it'll be well with you, and so that you'll prolong your days. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there, there, are some, there are some very relevant principles behind this mitzvah. Actually, uh, when I was growing up, I enjoyed reading the, uh, the stories of a man named Tom Brown from the northeastern states, New Jersey to be specific. He was a, a wilderness man. He was, he was raised and trained in the art of not only surviving but living well in the wilderness uh, by, by an Apache elder. And I, I loved reading Tom Brown's stories when I was growing up. He would, uh, he would stalk deer and, uh, and hunt them with his bare hands. And uh, he, he went into the wilderness for a full year and just lived um, off the land. He went in without even his clothes, just a knife. And then he made clothes for himself. And uh, anyway, fascinating stories. But one of, one of the little uh, tips he gives about living in the wilderness is uh, if you come across a bird's nest, don't take the bird and its eggs. Don't, just take the eggs. Why? Because the mother bird will come back and lay some more eggs for you. This is from a man who, as far as I know, doesn't have a Torah point of reference, eh? So, I mean, hey, there could be some very deep principles here in terms of uh, preserving the environment, um, ecological concerns, um, you know, wildlife management, etc. But anyway, th- this, this is the least of the mitzvot. And uh, we, of course, we can, you know, as our, as our grid for reading some of these commandments, the, the words of the Master are always ringing in our ears where he says... If you want to be great in the kingdom, then practice the commandments in the law, even the least of the commandments. So now you know what the least of them is. <laughs> and don't just practice them, teach other people to also. So take a minute to teach someone what to do if they encounter a bird's nest with the, with the mother and the eggs, and uh, you know, if they're on a hunting trip and they're really hungry or whatever. Okay, let's, let's look at a couple other uh, mitzvot here that point very strongly to Mashiach, to the Messiah. Um, you could see that these are messianic silhouettes. Uh, a silhouette is like the outline of someone. You can kind of see the person's form, but you can't see clearly the details. And the Torah is full of messianic silhouettes. Uh, one of them is Deuteronomy twenty-one, seventeen, where it talks about the firstborn son and how it's actually a law in the Torah that the firstborn is to receive a double portion of the inheritance. In Hebrew, the term is pishnaim. He is to receive pishnaim of the inheritance. And uh, who is the firstborn from the dead? Uh, who, is, who is the Bechor, the firstborn of all of the, uh, the sons of Elohim? Of course, it's our Savior, Yeshua. And so this tells us something, and that it's that Yeshua gets the double portion. He gets the pishnaim. And uh, of course, there's some, there's some deep teachings that accompany that. But for now, we can just say, Wow, Yeshua is our older brother. He's the firstborn of the Father. We look up to him. We are so happy that he gets a massive portion of the inheritance. Indeed, he is worthy of all glory and riches and honor. And he is going to inherit the Olam. He is going to inherit the whole universe and the outlying galaxies. He's also going to inherit the land of Israel. And I think we're all going to be cheering when our great older brother Yeshua does come to inherit that which is his. Another example is uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. It talks about the one who is hung on a tree and you have to, how you have to take him down by evening. Of course, there were several men who were secret disciples of the Master in the Sanhedrin uh, in Yeshua's generation. And uh, because they were observant, they made a point of carrying out this mitzvah when Yeshua was hung and uh, expired in his, uh, in his execution. Uh, the interesting thing here is the, the term for uh, hung is talui. Can we all say talui? I, I, to, give, to give credit where credit's due, I learned this from Daniel Lancaster and from his series on the book of Galatians that's available on the BethEmmanuel.org website. Um, he has some fascinating things to say about this term. I'll just, I'll just point out to you uh, one of them. The Jewish people to this day call Yeshua talui. They call him the hung one. That is, a, that is like an expression that's ref, re, referring to Yeshua of Nazareth. He is talui. The interesting thing is, though, talui also means something else that maybe sheds light on Yeshua and his relationship with the Jewish people at this juncture in history. Uh, you know how in English we'll say that something is left hanging? I'm sure that we've heard this expression. Um, that means that like something is left undecided, it's unsure, it's not settled. That's also 
a term in Hebrew. To say that something is talui means that it's left hanging, it's, it's not decided, it's not, it's not settled. And isn't that true with regards to Yeshua's Messiahship, that it is talui? Um, maybe Yeshua isn't a total right after the Jewish people. Maybe there are some questions deep in the hearts of some Jewish people, in the backs of their minds when they read uh, passages like Daniel, where it prophesies when the Mashiach will come, when they read the Talmud, commenting on that concept and saying the Mashiach will come at the end of 4,000 years of world history, which apparently was about 2,000 years ago, but he didn't come because of Israel's sins. You know, maybe when Jewish people read these passages, there's this question hanging in the back of their minds, talui in the back of their minds, maybe Yeshua is the Mashiach. Um, I've T-A-L? U-I is how I would transliterate it in English. <clears throat> so that's a, that's a fascinating messianic silhouette. You know, I, I, I think that when the giver of the Torah was engineering this thing and, uh, and formulating it for the people of Israel, just he must have so had these things in mind, eh? Like just to uh, imprint in every passage a revelation of Mashiach and who he is and what his job description will be. Wow, it blows me away. Um, I don't think it's the same word where the serpent was hung on the staff, but Yeshua did reference that instance in uh, Yochanan chapter 3, didn't he? And he applied that to himself. When we look on the Son of Man, then uh, we will be healed, and he must uh, be lifted up just like the serpent was in the wilderness. That's a great example also. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a couple. Uh, okay, I, I, ha- having said that about you know the absolute authority of the Pentateuch in the lives of believers today, I, I do want to say that it is possible to take some of these passages and misapply them or misunderstand them, and you could get very humorous outcomes from that. I'll give you an example. This is something that Genevieve and I were joking about as we went for a walk down in Hudson, Wisconsin when we were there um, for over Shavuot. Uh, we noticed that some houses had, uh, had flat roofs on the very top, and uh, that they had little parapets around them, little fences around the top of the flat part. And uh, so we, uh, we, had a little, uh, we had a little joke about that. Of course, we read in Deuteronomy 22.8 that you are to make a parapet for your roof so that nobody will fall off your roof. And so we were thinking, well, we can see who the observant people are in this neighborhood. You know, it's the, there's, there's an observant person, there's an open, and that person there, they even go to congregation, but they don't have a parapet on the roof. Guess they're not very observant after all. <laughs> and I mean, you know, you could, you could um, if, you, if you wanted to organize a squad of people to uh, be your, your local Torah terrorists, they could go around and sit down with you and say, well, you know, brother, we, uh, we, uh, we drove by your house and we noticed that you haven't built a parapet on your roof yet. And uh, maybe you would say, well, but my roof has like an 8 and 12 slope. I mean, nobody's going to be crawling on there. There's nothing even on top of it. And they could say, well, brother, you know, though it does say in the Torah to build a parapet, and we've just discerned a rebellious streak in your heart, and we're here to confront you on that. I mean, you know, you could, you could take, in, in an over-literal approach to the Torah, you could take passages like this, and uh, you could really misuse them, couldn't you? So th- this is a humorous example of how, you know, there is a place for moderation in the Torah. There is a place for looking at our cultural situation and applying as much as we can. Uh, maybe we could say it's the, uh, the principle that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the do-what-you-can principle. You do what you can. So, I mean, I, I think what would be the underlying principle in this mitzvah? It would be taking responsibility for your property, um, taking, taking measures to ensure the safety of people who are on your property. In uh, Canada, maybe a practical application of this, maybe Moshe would have wrote this into the Torah if he was writing to Canadians is to put salt on ice on your sidewalk. Maybe that would be an example for us today, hey? But uh, that is true, Hannah. Um, even in Israel today, apartment roofs, for instance, will be flat usually, and people can just go up there. Uh, we lived with a South African family in Jerusalem, for over a month, and uh, they would go up and they would have barbecues on the roof of the apartment. Wonderful times. And that's what it was like in ancient Israel too. So I can see how there's a practical measure there. But you can see how maybe, uh, maybe if people wanted to be ultra-observant and they were ultra-literal, you know, they would see how big they could build their parapets. Well, you know, I have a, I have a three-foot parapet. I, I have an eight-foot parapet with, uh, with barbed wire and razor wire on top and just to make sure that nobody... nobody gets off of this thing or damages themselves, you know? So...
another example is Deuteronomy 23. 24 and 25. Uh, this is the one that you can reference if you see some really nice big watermelons or tomatoes or something in your neighbor's garden and you want them. Well, you can go over and you know just start picking some tomatoes for yourself or taking that big watermelon and your neighbor's going to burst out the back door being like, what are you doing? Those are my prized tomatoes. And you can, you can, well, you can just explain it by saying, well, you know, I'm a Bible believer, right? I actually do the, the stuff in the Old Testament. And you know, in the Old Testament, it says that I'm allowed to just take stuff from my neighbor uh, vineyard or crop or garden is as long as I don't put it in my pockets or put it in a basket. See, so uh, so I'm okay. I'm allowed to do this. You you don't want to try. Children, don't try this at home, right? You don't want to <laughs> you don't want to do that with your neighbors. So maybe that's another example of how, as you read the Torah, it has to be read with intelligence, applying it with the help of the Holy Spirit to real life situations, and that's where halacha comes in, right? That's where a halacha, like your interpretation of the Torah. Um, with the understanding that Mashiach gives you, does have some flexibility. It is sensitive. It does take into account a person's situation. Right. So you need to take your knife and you need to cut up the watermelon right in your neighbor's garden and eat it there. <laughs> so those would be some humorous examples. Um, I'll, go, I'll, I'll take you in a guided tour through the rest of this parasha and extrapolate a couple of the commandments here that could apply to us. Um, often they have deeper principles that can apply also. Um, Something that has stayed with me and really helped me understand the Torah and make it applicable is uh, a very short um, teaching that I learned from Tim Siemens, one of the men on our leadership team in Saskatoon. Um, It's the three P's of biblical hermeneutics. Um, It's understanding the practice, the principle, and the person. Um, For every commandment, It's a practice. It's something that you can practice. And so you can read it on a literal level and ask, well, how do I live this out? Is there a time frame for this? Uh, With whom whom does this relate to, etc.? That's the practice. Um, Then there's the principle. Uh, This is the underlying reason for this commandment. Why do you do this, uh, this practice? And then thirdly, there's the person. Who gave it? And what does this practice tell us about him? So you could say it's like, what do you do, why do you do it, and who told you to do it, and what, is it, what does it communicate to you about him. And uh, when we read passages like this, where there are long series of mitzvot that don't seem to immediately apply, on a practical level, we can, we can fall back to the other two levels. We can, re- we, can read the, we can understand the principle behind the mitzvah, and we can see what it tells us about our Father in heaven, and uh, of course about Yeshua our Rabbi also. Um, here's a here's one that really burns in my heart in Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 1 to 4 it says what to do if you find an object or a farm animal or something that is lost now when I was growing up what do you say if you find something that's lost Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? That's what the world says. If you find it, it's yours. The person lost it. They should have been smarter. But uh, interestingly enough, the Torah says, au contraire, that doesn't, that doesn't fly when it comes to a Torah approach to life. The finders, keepers things just doesn't work. Unless you're talking about Yeshua's redemption. He found us and he gets to keep us. And uh, the enemy who is holding us hostage can just... Uh, Go to you know where. That's an excellent application. Uh, I, we actually did something sim- similar. I took Genevieve canoeing for a week down the North Saskatchewan, and uh, there was a cow that was stuck in the mud on the uh, on the side of the river. And uh, I mean, we could have just floated by and left it, but I thought, you know, I, this cow's going to die. I want to try and help it. Uh, this cow belongs to uh, a local farmer. And uh, maybe I can help in that regard also. So we, we stopped and we spent several hours trying to dig this cow out of the mud, eh? Um, it, it turned out in the end to be futile. I think it had a broken leg or something, so it wasn't able to get out. But we did dig it out, and I even walked up the banks, and I walked a couple of miles to the nearest farmer to ask uh, who owned the cow, and I tried to call him and notify him. But, you know, that, that, so that, that's an example in my life of, you know, when you see something that belongs to someone else and it's lost or whatever, um, if it's in something of a crisis, you know, who's my neighbor? Well, everybody is my neighbor. So I'm responsible to help other people, to help take care of them, to watch out for them. Um, Maybe this would be another example. On our recent trip to Winnipeg, uh, we stopped just 
east of Portage de la Prairie at a gas station. And just as I was walking out after filling up, I saw the proprietor of the gas station inside going like this out the window. And I saw a truck driving away with a trailer. And my brother said, they just drove off without paying for their gas. So I ran inside, I asked the proprietor, and sure enough, that's what happened. Happens way too often. Makes me really mad. And uh, so I ran back to the truck, we jumped in, and uh, we chased these guys down. Uh, they were driving an Alberta play with, Alberta, with an Alberta trailer. And uh, I'm pretty sure they knew quite well what they were doing because my brothers overheard their conversation at the pump. And it wasn't the kind of conversation that honest people would have. So anyway, um, we, we took down their license plate number, we called the RCMP, and uh, then we drove out in front of them, and we just slowed down real nice and slow. And we wouldn't let them pass. Um, so they drove about 80 clicks down the, high, down the Trans-Canada, almost all the way to Winnipeg, before an RCMP officer came up and set those lights a-flashing and pulled them over. And uh, maybe, maybe that's an example, too, of how, you know, you can just, you can see things that are going wrong, injustice that's happening. And the easy thing to do is just, just to look the other way, to do nothing, right? I mean, hey, I'm a busy person, I have a schedule, whatever. But uh, I actually enjoyed that, that opportunity to, to see some justice brought to that situation because it really bothers me that people do that. Okay, what's, what's a practical application of this, this parsha on our lives on a deeper level? Th- this is how I see it. Uh, we as the body of Mashiach have lost some things and some of us have begun to find them again. For instance, our heritage in national Israel, uh, the, the freedom and the beauty of Shabbat, um, the relevancy of the mitzvot for today, how they, how they, they, uh, they intensify our devotion to Mashiach. Um, I could, I could go on and on about things that we are rediscovering in the body of Messiah through the Messianic Jewish, through the Hebrew Roots movement. And uh, maybe this would be an example of this that applies very much to us as a community of disciples. Our brothers have lost Shabbat, and we found Shabbat, and now it is our mission to exert ourselves to the uttermost to help them find Shabbat, to restore Shabbat to those who have lost it. Uh, that would be one practical example. Uh, there are many others of them. Uh, you know, our identity in the people of Israel, whether we be from Jewish or Gentile backgrounds, um, a deeper understanding of the Hebrew Bible in the Hebrew language, uh, things like this. These are things that have been lost to the body of Messiah. These are things that he's restoring us to, and now Yeshua is inviting us on this joint mission to help bring them back to the body of Messiah. And that is what we are all about here in Prince Albert at Crown of Messiah. So that would be a practical application of this. Um, I want to talk about uh, movements for a moment. It seems that in every movement, uh, whether it be like a movement of religious reformation or uh, a social, social justice, uh, etc., there, there is a good side to it that's moderate, that, is, uh, uh, that is, has, has good objectives, and uh, no like ulterior motives. And then often there's also an extremist element that may have its own agenda, that may have some pretty ugly attitudes, uh, etc. That, that's true of almost any movement or, uh, or religion. And uh, an example, I, I think, would be the, the feminist movement. You know, we, we look at women's suffrage, for instance. Uh, we look at things that the, uh, the feminist movement have accomplished, and I support quite a few of these things. I, I think it's done a lot of good for women around the world, but uh, there have also been some byproducts to the extremist element that's been in the feminist movement. Um, you know, things that we're all aware of, abortion in the name of, of women's rights, uh, families with both parents working outside the home while the abandoned children are left to daycare and government schools to be raised and cared for and raised, you know, assuming that parents even choose to have children at all, um, sometimes disorder in the family, rendering the husband-wife relationship a not-so-accurate picture of the relationship between Messiah and his bride. Um, namely the Israel of God. So, you know, you, you can see how this would be an example of a, of a movement where there's, there's accomplished much good. And there's also an extremist element that has had a negative byproducts. And uh, when, I, when I look at, there's one element of, of the feminist movement, it seems the main objective of which is to remove all gender distinctions in society and in the home. Essentially, there's no difference between 
um, male and female, those gender roles, they, they, uh, they don't run any farther or deeper than the physical function of biological reproduction. And uh, we, we see something interesting in, in the Torah about that. It's, it's in the commandment in, uh, where is it? 22 verse 5. 22 verse 5. Where it uh, simply says that, you know, women are to wear men's clothing. Um, men are to put on women's clothing. It's not so cool with God. You know, and I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get into the details of that because that, that's, that's not the point, right? The point, what I see here, is just that God has called men to be men. And he's called women to be women and, and to express that in the ways that he gives us. And, uh, you know, as for the, the details of that, that's open for discussion. Um, Yeshua is leading his people in that, right? But uh, what I see there is just the fact that there is a place for gender roles and for distinction in the home, in society, even in things like dress. And, uh, of course, this is one that people, this is something that, like, extremists can take and go wild over, right? I, I, I don't go crazy with, with stuff like this, right? I just think, okay, this is, must be something that uh, is close to the Father's heart and that I assume the coming of Messiah didn't uh, do away with. Here's another one. This one is one that's often kind of like maybe poo-pooed a little bit. Don't wear a material mixed of wool and linen together, the whole mixed garment thing, right? And uh, I'll just talk about that for a moment. I'll share with you my understanding of that and my application of it at this point. Uh, what it says there is don't wear shotnez of wool and linen. And the word shotnez is rendered in the NASB here as material, but what the term actually means is somewhat open for discussion. Um, what, what, what my understanding of this commandment is, is, okay, I'll talk about the practical level first, the, 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 the first P. Um, don't wear clothes with wool and linen mixed together. <laughs> um, from a tailor's point of view, it's just a disaster anyway. Um, clothes like that look bad. They, uh, they just, they get really funky when you wash them, uh, etc. But, you know, the reasons for it don't really matter. He just says not to do it. I, I take that a step further, actually. Um, I, I try and avoid clothing that has mixed fibers, one from the plant world and one from the animal world. Uh, wool is from the animal world, um, cotton, etc. Linen is from the, the, uh, the plant world. And uh, that, that's where I'm at with this one. Um, the question is often raised, well, what about synthetic fibers, man-made fibers like polyester, uh, etc.? And uh, I, I personally see polyester, it's like a neutral fiber. Uh, it's neither from the plant nor from the animal world. Actually, te technically polyester is made from plastic, which comes from subterranean oil reservoirs, which in turn come from all the compressed plants and animals and giants who lived uh, before the flood. So that, that's where we get our plastic and our gas and our polyester from, right? So, I mean, who knows? You may be wearing a little bit of dinosaur in your polyester or something. Who, who's to say? But, uh, you know, that, that's on a practical level where I'm at with that. And I continue to grow and I want to be open to, uh, to, uh, to understanding this better. Um, you know, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Socks and undergarments. If you get pure cotton ones, they wear out really fast and it's hard to get them. So, you know, when it comes, for instance, to socks and undergarments, I, I'll wear a cotton poly mix and I'm, I'm all right with that at this point. Um, what's the principle behind this? Uh, one of the principles I see is, is simply this, that holiness is a practical thing and that our Creator, He wants to be so intimately involved in our lives that He is even involved in our wardrobe and her choice of clothes in the morning. Isn't that special? I mean, I love it that I have a father who, who, like, who looks at my clothes and is like, yeah, I like that on you, you know? That looks really good. And other things maybe says, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's the best for you, etc. So I think maybe that's the principle behind it. Um, along, the, along the lines of clothing, the very next verse talks about the corners of your garment. And it says, make tassels for your, the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. Um, the, the previous uh, passage in Numbers that we usually read about this, who can tell me the Hebrew word for tassels there? Tzitzit, that's correct. Here, they're not actually called tzitzit, they're called gedilim. Can we all say gedilim? And I noticed that in, in uh, David Stern's translation that's rendered like twisted fibers. And that could be inherent in the meaning. But uh, the root gadol is also the root of another significant Hebrew word. Can anyone tell me what it is? Something that's gadol? Close. The, the Hebrew word is actually gadol. 
What does gedol mean? Hmm? Yeah, the coin hagedol is an example. Gedol means big or great. Yeah. So gedol means big or great, as in the coin hagedol. And here we see that these tassels on the corners of the garments are called gedilim. So there, on a linguistic level, there is a connection between tassels and what they represent and greatness. Now, stop and think about this for a moment. What do tassels represent? Actually, in the Siddur, one of the prayers that are prayed traditionally upon donning the tallit with the tassels attached to it, is uh, it, it specifies that all of the commandments, they're talui, they hang on the commandment of tzitzit. So tzitzit represent doing all of the commandments in the Torah. Now, what did Yeshua say about greatness? In Matthew 5, he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom do all the commandments and teach others to do them also. So you can see there's this, can you, can you see the connection here? There's this connection between um, tassels that represent doing all of the commandments and they're called gedilim, something that has to do with greatness. And the, man, the master comes and says, greatness in the kingdom is qualified by doing those same commandments. It's, it's, a, really, uh, it's a really meaningful connection. And I wouldn't be surprised if the master had this very passage in mind as he taught about that. Maybe he was like waving his, the corner of his, uh, his talit. Maybe he was waving one of those gedilim to, uh, to illustrate that. What, what verse was that in the New Testament again? Oh, Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. It's like the flagship verses of the, the Messianic Jewish movement. I, I want to look at... A couple more things here before we finish too. Um, let, I, I want to talk for a moment about Johannine Hamartiology. Uh, Johannine, of course, refers to Yochanan uh, and things that pertain to him. Uh, Hamartia is sin. So Hamartiology is your understanding of sin, your definition of it, how you categorize it. And uh, we learn something fascinating about, uh, about his understanding of sin. Uh, when we read First John, his first letter, in the last chapter, chapter 5, he says in verses 16 and 17, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not to death. There is a sin to death. I don't say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there's a sin not to death. Let me ask you something. Where did he get this concept from? that all, all unrighteousness is sin, but there is a specific class of sins that are to death. He got it straight from the Torah. Uh, Johannine Hamartiology had a solid basis in the Torah. To uh, Yeshua's emissary Yochanan, the Torah was what defined sin. The Torah was what categorized sin. Without the Torah, how do you know what sin is? Ultimately, the Torah is like the objective and absolute authority on what God views as right and wrong. And uh, when we try and snip the Torah out of our Bibles or denigrate its authority in our lives, we end up pulling the carpet out from under our feet. Um, there, I'll give you two examples in this parsha where it mentions this term. Um, the Hebrew term is chet mavet. Chet is sin, mavet is death. So in Hebrew it's literally chet mavet, it's like the, it's a death sin is what it is. It's a death sin. And uh, in 22, 26 of Deuteronomy, it mentions this. It says, uh, Do nothing to the girl. There's no sin in the girl worthy of death. Um, this is in the case when she is violated in the countryside. Um, so, there's no chet mavet in her, is how the Torah reads. Um, there are some sins listed in this parasha that are um, that do qualify for capital punishment. Uh, their perpetrators are executed. A uh, couple are sexual immorality between married people and uh, kidnapping a, per, a, a Jewish person or a someone from the nation of Israel. Um, or literally stealing them. Another example is in 21, 22. It says if someone is, is hung. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, it's the same concept there as chet mavet, and he's put to death. So anyway, we see a couple examples of how John's understanding of sin was solidly based in the Torah. And uh, that tells me that I should be today also. In Deuteronomy 22.30, it says, Don't take your father's wife, 
uh, that should be a given, but apparently it wasn't a given in the Corinthian congregation uh, approximately 2,000 years ago. Uh, Paul had to tackle this situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where a man was actually, he had taken his father's wife, assumedly his stepmother or something like that. And uh, apparently some of the Corinthians thought it was just fine. I don't know, maybe they were like forerunners to the hyper-grace, everything's okay, let's all love each other message or something. Anyway, uh, Paul did not think it was all fine. Um, he, he took a very strong stance with this. We have to ask ourselves, where did he get his authority to take this stance? He got it from this parsha. His authority to take strong measures against this perpetrator was based on, this, on the Torah, on this specific section. And actually, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 5, he concludes his, uh, his halakha that he gives by saying, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is a, a phrase that turns up over and over again in this very passage of Deuteronomy. It's actually mentioned nine times in this area. I'll just uh, tell you the references. Deuteronomy 13.5, 17.7, 17.12, 19.19, 21.21, 22, 21, 22, 22, 22, 24, and 24, 7. Th- these are the places in Deuteronomy where it says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, literally purge the evil from Israel. So you can see that as Paul was dealing with the situation, he was drawing directly on the authority of the Torah um, with regards to the measures that he took. Um, there's a passage, Charlotte, that you read about the, the Ammonites and Moabites, and wow, were they ever in trouble. And the reason was given, because they weren't hospitable to the people of Israel when they left Egypt and they came through their area. Um, unfortunately, I think that's very true today, the principle behind this. The principle is, like, be very warm and hospitable towards the people of Israel on a national level, the Jewish people out in the diaspora, um, maybe this would apply during the Second World War. Maybe this would apply to Jewish people who were fugitives, who were on the run from the Nazis. Um, maybe the Master is going to address every person who had the opportunity to harbor Jewish fugitives. Maybe to some of them he'll say, I was hungry and you fed me. Maybe to some of them he'll say, away from you, cursed ones. Maybe you were a great religious people, but I came to you in the person of my Jewish brothers and you didn't take me in. Maybe he'll say things like that. Um, Something that, that, that is relevant to us on a national level here in Canada is a ship called the St. Louis ship that fled from Nazi Germany with over a thousand Jewish people, men, women, and children. They went to South America and country after country turned them away. The United States turned them away. Their last stop was Canada. And uh, it almost makes me cry just to say this, but Canada turned them away also. Sent them back to Germany. Most of them were killed in concentration camps. Uh, Thank God, in the last decade, he raised up a man named David Damien, an Egyptian believer, a doctor who has lived in Canada for, I think, several decades. And uh, he brought awareness to this. He says there is an anti-Semitic root in Canada, and we as a nation have blood on our hands. We are responsible. And if we want to see the glory of God come to this country, this is something that must be addressed and repented of. And uh, he, he led the body of Messiah across this country in national repentance. I, I heard him speak in Saskatoon. And uh, interestingly enough, it was shortly after he led the body of Messiah in that, that the Messianic movement exploded in Canada. People began waking up to the Jewish roots of our faith, to, to that element of Yeshua's identity that for so long has been overlooked or despised. And uh, I, I thank God for that. Um, you, can, you, can, you can read about that, about their whole journey in that regard. It's their organization is Watchmen for the Nations. Um, I'm so thankful that they, took, they, 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 they went through that repentance. They actually had a, a, a gala event in Ottawa where they invited the survivors from that ship who did make it through the Holocaust. They repented to them. There were very high government officials there. And uh, you were there. Wow. I'm thankful that we have representatives from our congregation who was there. Mm-hmm. I'll, re- I'll reference two things here in brief that also show up in the apostolic scriptures. In Deuteronomy 24.1, it mentions, uh, it mentions the situation where a divorce happens, um, when there's ervat devar on the part of the spouse. That's the word that's translated like a thing of indecency or unchastity, etc. It's the same clause, essentially, that Yeshua uses in Matthew 5.32 as the one legitimate cause 
for a divorce. So we can see that the mas- in the Master's teaching, he was supporting the Torah and the Torah's rulings. It goes on to say that the, the woman who is divorced will, will go from that husband and she will remarry. So it doesn't even say that she may, it just says she will. It's a, it's a given, at least in that passage in the Torah. Um, and finally, it says, don't muzzle the ox. I love, let's call him Saul. I love Saul's commentary, his Midrashic commentary on this passage. 1 Corinthians 9.9, 9, he says, God isn't concerned about oxen, is he? <laughs> That's what he says. Uh, I, he is concerned about oxen, of course. But Shaul goes on to make a Midrashic application of this on a deeper level and says, this is about people who work hard to serve the congregation. Don't, uh, don't muzzle them while they, while they serve hard. Um, he, he references the same passage in 1 Timothy 5.18 where he, uh, mentions, he applies it to elders who, who give good leadership and who work hard at preaching and teaching. Don't muzzle them. Make sure that they're rewarded, that they're, they're amply rewarded for their efforts is uh, Shaul's point there. Let's, uh, let's leave our Torah commentary there. Th- this parsha is so rich, it has so much, so I, I, hope, I hope it's okay that I've taken an extra five or ten minutes to go into some details in it. I mean, wow. You know, do you know how much of this we covered? We covered like maybe 10 or 20 percent of the, the whole series of mitzvot here. I mean, wow, we could go for hours on this parsha. So forgive me for not going into detail on every single commandment. But uh, hey, we, we have some oneg we need to attend to. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.